Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, this is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word, and welcome back to the podcast. I know it's been a little while. I was out of the country last month, and then I also had finished my last podcast series, and I'm still kind of working on developing a new series. I'm thinking about doing a series, which would be an overview of the Bible, looking at some of the major themes of the Bible and how the storyline progresses. So if that's something that interests you, please let me know. And also, if there's anything else in particular that you'd like to learn about with about the Bible or Bible-related topics, please let me know. I put that question out on Facebook, and I had someone ask about the hypostatic union. So in today's podcast, that's what we're going to talk about. So we are going to look at a little theology, and if you don't know or have never heard of the hypostatic union, don't worry. It's not super complicated, (laughs) but actually we're going to start by kind of putting aside the words hypostatic union and say that we are actually going to talk about Jesus. And normally when we talk about Jesus and who he is, we talk about it from a salvation standpoint, what he did for us and what that means for him as a member of the Trinity. But that's not what we're going to look at here. Instead, we are going to look at Jesus's nature. So you probably know there are two parts to Jesus's nature. On one hand, he's God, and on the other hand, he was a human. So how can both of these things be part of Jesus at the same time? So that's what the concept of the hypostatic union tries to answer. How is Jesus both human and divine? So if you look at the titles that Jesus has in the Bible, you can clearly see this relationship between the human and the divine. Jesus is called Son of God and Son of Man. He is called the Word of God, which relates to his divine nature coming from God. And he's also called the Son of David, which links him firmly into Jewish history, which is human history. He's called Rabbi, which is a human teacher but he's also called Lord and Messiah. And Lord and Messiah in themselves have both this tension of human and divine because they were used for humans in Jewish history. The Messiah just means chosen one. But through Jesus, they were redefined as divine. And then later, other New Testament writers kind of underscored this idea that they were divine titles and not just human titles. So if we look back at Christian history, after the death of Christ, as Christianity grew and spread, it quickly became clear that it would be necessary to define Jesus's nature. You have the human and divine, how do they interact? And there started to be a variety of beliefs. So on one end of this kind of continuum of of belief about Jesus's nature, there was the idea that Jesus was only divine. And some people said all flesh and matter are evil. Therefore, Jesus could not be human. He had to only be divine. And this view is called Gnosticism. 
But on the other end of this spectrum was a view called Arianism. And in this view, it said that Jesus was only a human and God chose him and some even say adopted him to use him as the Messiah. So if we look at the Bible, we can see that neither of these ideas, neither of these extremes is biblical. So as these ideas started to rise, the early church fathers decided that they needed to work together to come up with a definition of Christ's person that would reflect what's in the Bible. So what does it mean for Christ to be both human and divine? So before we answer that question, let's look at why it's important for Jesus to be both human and divine. Why was his human nature important? Why was his divine nature important? Why can't he be one or the other? First, why was his human nature important? So there's actually a lot of reasons that Jesus had to become a man, and I'm going to focus on three of them. The first is to be a substitute sacrifice for our sins. So in order for Jesus to take the penalty for our sins, and as a result, to be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins, he had to be human. Um, it says in Hebrews 2.17 that Jesus, quote, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, end quote. So that verse clearly says that Jesus had to become fully human in order to make atonement for their sins. This verse also says the second reason for Jesus to be human, and that is that he had to be a mediator or high priest between us and God. So as sinners, we can't come into the presence of a holy God on our own. We need someone to bring us into God's presence. So Jesus had to be that mediator for us, but in order to do that, he had to be a human, as it says in this verse in Hebrews 2.17. The third reason that Christ had to be made human, had to be fully human, is so that he could be our example or pattern in life. And there's a lot of verses that talk about this, that we can look to Christ, that he was tempted as we are. So he is a perfect example for us. One verse in particular is 1 John 2, 6, which says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So that just shows that as Christians, we must live as Jesus did. So interestingly, these reasons for Jesus to be human are pretty similar to the reasons that it's important for Jesus to be fully divine. The penalty for our sins, if we go back to looking at Jesus as a substitute sacrifice, the penalty for our sins is so vast that all sin for all time could not be covered by a mere human. Jesus had to be divine in order to be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. As a human, he just couldn't, as only a human, he couldn't have taken on that total burden of sin. So in order to be that sacrifice, he had to be divine. He had to be sinless and holy. The other thing, another thing that we said was that Jesus had to be a mediator between God and man. So he had to be human in order to represent the human side, but he also had to be divine in order to have the ability to approach God and come into his presence. So in order 
to bring us back to God, Jesus had to be divine himself. He had to be divine in order to approach a holy God. So those are some of the reasons that Jesus had to be both human and divine. So now we can see what the tension is between these two. So let's look at some of the ways that people have worked to explain the full humanity and full deity of Christ. And a lot of these attempts actually ended up being considered heresy. So for example, one view is called Apollinarianism. And of course, the guy who promoted this view was named Apollinarius, and that's why it has that name. So it says that Jesus had a human body, but a divine mind. So he was one being, but it was separated into parts, uh, maybe a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. So he had part of him was human, part of him was divine. He had a human body, but a divine mind. So another view, which is not correct, is Eutychianism, again, promoted by Eutychius. And it says that Jesus is a new type of being. So he had a human nature and a divine nature, and they came together to make kind of a third new nature. So it's no, no longer human, really, no longer really divine, but this kind of new thing. So maybe an example of this would be like in baking, how you mix together all your ingredients and you bake it and something new comes out and you can't separate it anymore into the individual ingredients. There's actually like chemical reactions that have happened to make this new thing and you can't return to the old thing anymore. So that's another incorrect view of Jesus and his nature. A third view is Nestorianism by Nestorius. And that says that Jesus sort of encapsulated two people. So he had a human person within him and a divine person. So an illustration of this might be like shoes in a shoe box. You buy a pair of shoes, you have two shoes inside the box, and the box sort of keeps them together into one thing. So you could hand somebody the box and you'd be handing them one thing, but inside are two different shoes. So that was kind of an example of Jesus where he had a human person and a divine person, and they were sort of encapsulated inside of himself, but they were separate. So, and that's also incorrect. None of these views are an adequate expression of Jesus's nature and actually are considered to be heresy. So, as these views started popping up, and as church fathers were trying to figure out what the truth is, the early church decided to come together and to write a doctrinal statement that would give the truth about the nature of Christ. So now we're going to get into what is actually the nature of Christ. How actually do we define it? So in 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon met, and the result of this council was a statement on the person of Christ. It's not very long, but it can be a little confusing, so I'm actually just going to point out some of the important phrases to you. So it starts out by saying that one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is at once truly God and truly man, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and with us as regards his humanity, but without sin in two natures, without confusion, without change, without separation, without division. So what I read to you is pieces of it that have 
kind of been joined together. So if you go, you could go and look it up if you wanted to, and it would be a little bit longer than that. But I'm going to go through and kind of explain. Those are some of the most significant phrases. But So I'm going to explain how they address these different errors in doctrine. So we start out and it introduces Jesus, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once truly God and truly man. So that's kind of setting up what we're talking about here. And then it says he is of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. So that's talking about the fact that he is fully divine. One substance means that he is the same nature as the Father. That means he's fully divine. That refutes that Arian heresy that Jesus was an ordinary man that God just chose and empowered. So next then it says that he is one with us as regards his humanity, but without sin. So that means that he's fully human. One substance with us means he's he's the same nature as people, as humans. And that refutes that Gnostic heresy that he was not human at all. And it also refutes that Apollinarian heresy that says that he was partially God and partially human, the kind of puzzle piece idea. So there we, we see he is both fully divine and fully human. So the next part of it says that he has two natures that are without confusion and without change. So that refutes that Eutychian idea that Jesus became a new type of being that was a mixture between human and divine. So he didn't get baked together and become something completely new, as we talked about the baking illustration. Instead, he has two natures that don't come together and change and aren't confused together in a way that makes them inseparable. And that leads into the next phrase, which says, without separation and without division. So saying that his two natures are without separation or division refutes the Nestorian idea that Jesus was two beings in one body. So that was like the shoes in the shoebox. So he's not just two things which are separate, but sort of bound together by his body. Instead, it's without separation and without division. You can't pluck out the human part or pluck out the divine part. They are mixed together. So we see some of these that say what Jesus is not, but what does that mean that he actually is? It means first that he is both fully God and fully man, that these natures are distinct, and yet they are fully complete in every part of him. So there is no part of Jesus that is not both fully God and fully man, yet they are distinct. So this is one of those things that's hard for our human minds to comprehend. So you might be listening and saying, okay, I feel like I'm at the beginning still. I, I don't really know what that means. And it, it's true. It is hard to understand. It is something that as humans, it's hard for us to comprehend. Here's an illustration that might help. I've heard when you talk about how God can be everywhere, God's omnipresence, some people like to use the illustration of a sponge. And I think maybe that's a good illustration for this as well. And so I'll tell you this illustration, but I also want you to keep in mind that illustrations like this never can get the full picture. We're talking about a human earthly thing that gives us a small representation of what might be going on in 
the divine realm. So we can't fully understand it, and this illustration's not going to fully get it either, but at least it can help us to start understanding. So if you think of a sponge, if a sponge is soaked in water, there's completely sponge and water mixed together in a way that when we look at a sponge, you can't say this is sponge and this is water. And that way there's no separation. But there also is no change, like it hasn't become some kind of third substance. Instead, there's we have both sponge and water, even though we don't see how they're separated. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea what how these two natures can be together, but don't lose their distinction. And it might lean a little bit toward the Nestorian idea that Jesus is two distinct persons, because we do distinctly have water and sponge. But that's, again, where we need to realize that it's not a perfect illustration, but it can just give us a little glimpse into what is actually happening. So there we go. That is our definition of the hypostatic union. We have Jesus as fully God and fully human, and that is necessary in order that he can be a sacrifice for our sins, that he can be a mediator before God for us, and also that he can be our example of how to live while we are on the earth. And we also see that his human and his divine nature are distinct within him, and yet they are complete in every part of him. There is no part of Jesus that is not both fully human and fully divine. So there's a definition of the hypostatic union, and it's just fun, I think, to study theology to think about who God is and who Jesus is, and then how that affects us as we try to live our lives to follow God. And the hypostatic union does that because it lets us understand Jesus as our example, but also see how he can be a sacrifice for our sins. And our response to that is praise and gratitude to him for doing that for us, for adding to his divine nature, this human nature, in order that he could represent us before God and take our sins and give us an example of true obedience. So I hope this has helped you to think more deeply about Jesus as you try to understand and know him better. And definitely contact me if you have any other questions about this doctrine of the hypostatic union, or if you have any suggestions for upcoming podcasts. So thank you so much for listening to Building a Bridge to God's Word.